0: This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 73, part A. Hello, and welcome to the NegotiateX podcast. I am your co-host and co-founder, Nolan Martin. With me, as always, co-host, co-founder, Aram Denizhan. Aram. Want to kick it off for the day? I will. Sure.
1: How you doing today, Nolan? You doing all right?
0: I'm doing well. I'm doing well.
1: Good. So so am I. A little wet up here in New Hampshire, but but surviving. Hot in Florida, but and- <laughs> as always.
0: I get to go to the beach, so it works out.
1: Well, we're, we're visiting with somebody from across the pond, so we'll see what the weather's like over his way. Today, folks, we're joined by Scott Walker. Scott is one of the world's most experienced kidnapped for ransom negotiators. He served 16 years as a Scotland Yard detective, specializing in covert policing. And left in 2015 to support organizations, government departments, and private individuals negotiate the release of hostages all over the world, as well as resolving other similar perils such as piracy and cyber extortion attacks. Scott now uses his decades of experience to help individuals, teams, and organizations develop a unique understanding of what makes people think, feel, and act, specifically during times of crisis, conflict, and uncertainty. He regularly speaks at events around the world and coaches leaders on how to enhance their resilience, emotional intelligence, and communication skills. He also advises on building a thriving organizational culture and developing fulfilled, purpose-driven, and productive teams. Order Out of Chaos is Scott's first book. It is a Sunday Times bestseller. It illustrates and shares the same principles that he has applied and helps others apply to be more successful in their negotiations. Thank you, Scott, for joining us today. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Scott, I got to tell you, it's pretty exciting to interview a former Scotland Yard detective. As a kid, uh, in addition to watching a lot of BBC mysteries that always seem to feature <laughs> uh, Scotland Yard detectives, sometimes not always in the best of light, if I think about like Sherlock Holmes or something like that. But, but as a kid, there was this board game that we would play called Scotland Yard. One person was the notorious Mr. X who you were trying to catch. Everyone else played Scotland Yard Detectives, working together to capture them. I was wondering if the game was still around. So I searched <laughs> on Amazon for 23 bucks. You too can become a board game Scotland Yard Detective. But anyway, <laughs> so aside from my childhood imagining being you, what was your path that brought you to
2: this world of being a detective
1: and a negotiator?
2: I wish I could say it started by playing Cluedo. I'm not sure what you call it over there. <laughs> <laughs> a mystery game. Cluedo, which... yeah, well, Killed on mustard in the library with the the hammer, whatever it is. My <laughs> kids were just playing Clue
1: last night, as a matter of fact. So, yes, we still have it. Yeah, no, I love the
2: game as a kid. Uh, and like you, I enjoyed all the cop shows growing up, you know, particularly actually the American ones, like TJ Hooker, you know, William Shatner, and ones like that. Um, <laughs> but I actually started out as a barrister's clerk, you know, working for the lawyers uh, here in the U.K., And we specialize in many areas of crime, but particularly uh, in in law, but particularly in crime. And I would just get fascinated reading all the case papers every day, all the statements from victims and witnesses and interviews and all the crime scene photos. And I just thought, you know what? I want to be doing that. And so I left the job as a barrister's clerk and I moved down to the great metropolis that is London and joined Scotland Yard where I had, you know, 16 great years and always knew or wanted to be a detective. So after my probation, we have to do two years on the beat in uniform, you know, helping old ladies cross the road, school kids patrol, all that kind of stuff. And I went from that into a special branch which was focusing on all counterterrorism type activity. Again love that and from there into serious and organized crime, drug trafficking, and eventually yeah. that winding path took me to the world of kidnap for ransom. Wow.
0: Well, you left the police force in twenty fifteen. What can you tell us about the nature of the work you've done since and how are the situations you're involved with now any different from what you did before?
2: I think the biggest difference was particularly in the kidnap space as a cop, as a detective. Yes, the primary objective was going to get the hostages back safely. That was always the primary objective, but there was a secondary one of, we want to catch these bad guys. We want to lock them up. We want to find them, arrest them, put them before a court and send them to prison for a long time. Mm. But in the private sector, in the corporate world, I don't really care about who the kidnappers are trying to catch them. Or even if they're making this as a really strong business model, Mm. my sole aim is to support the family or the company to get timely release of the hostages for an appropriate amount of money. So everybody can go about their day as business as usual afterwards. So there's that real similarity in terms of it's getting the hostage back, but the difference is, Whereas previously I don't want to catch him, whereas having left the police, I wasn't really that interested.
1: Was that a hard transition to make, Scott, as you think kind of about the slight difference, but but important difference in the, in those roles?
2: Yeah. Initially, I'm like, so when's the briefing with the military or the cops to go and storm the stronghold? And the wise heads <laughs> that I that were mentoring me were like, what do you mean? Well, are we going to send the helicopters into the jungle? Or are we going to go knock on the doors with explosions? <laughs> the way? No, we're going to do a drop off the ransom money by the side of the road. Wait for the hostages to come out. We're going to get in a battered old Hyundai or truck or whatever it was. And we're going to bring them back to safety. And that's it. I was like, oh, okay. So that was a reality check. Of, <laughs> this is how it works. You know, in the in the big, bad corporate world, so to speak.
0: Well, I, I don't know if Aaron knows this, but I have like this burning desire to like circumnavigate the world in a sailboat. So I did not know that. Really interested to to dig in here to figure out what I need to do to, to be safe. So
2: <laughs> I, I, I would just think to like Michigan or something, or just 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 don't go anywhere off Somalia or the Philippines or the Gulf yeah. of Guinea. Or yeah, I'd, I'd keep a, a wide berth of like, yeah. <laughs> Nolan, please don't
1: make me have to call Scott to track you down and figure out what's happened well, to you.
0: Luckily, I'm already building a good team to help me out, so I think good. we'll be all right. Hey, Scott, you've, you've, you've
1: negotiated successfully more than 300 incidents with criminal gangs, cyber attackers, pirates, hijackers, and, and many other uh, notorious folks. Can you share an example from any of these situations where your training, your preparation, maybe even your mindset in the moment? made the difference between a good outcome and a not as good outcome?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you, you used a key word there around mindset. You know, we go in almost on autopilot sometimes in, into these crises. We get the adrenaline flowing. But until we can square away that mindset at the outset, you know, just taking that stop, check, breathe, calibrate before you engage in um It helps so much. And I remember in the early days of doing the kidnap negotiation, I didn't do that. I allowed my emotions to get the better of me, not being a great place mentally. And I caught myself almost, I wasn't shouting, but I was being very direct and blunt to his family who were going through a real trauma with one of their sons that had been kidnapped. And I, I wasn't being that empathetic. I wasn't being able to regulate my emotions. My mindset wasn't where it needed to be. And I was just expressing my frustration with them not doing what we wanted them to be. But then the negotiator I was with, a very, very experienced, just literally put his hand on my shoulder. And that was enough to interrupt the pattern really quickly of, Scott, just take a moment. And then I watched him how... He engaged how he empathized and listened and validated and parked his own ego with the family that brought them on side. And I saw that repeat many times with clients. So once I'd experienced it, I now knew what I needed to do to avoid going back there. But I could also see it when I was sitting down with families, particularly where they would allow their emotions to. Take over how they would communicate with the kidnappers. And on one case, the family member who was running the actual communication with the kidnappers because of the language barrier, he ended up shouting at the kidnappers. Now, I don't know about you two, but that's probably not the most sensible thing you want to do when your loved one is, is being held hostage and there's been mock executions and right. threats of harm. That, that's the last thing I want to be doing. So I've seen how. It's an inbuilt human natural reaction, yet the successful right. outcomes come about by getting a grip of that mindset early on
1: yeah, I mean, totally understandable the frustration, the anger, the sorrow, every all those feelings and emotions that somebody would be experiencing to let that come out in in the form of shouting, and at that moment, you know if you can take a step back, clearly the last thing that's going to be helpful or necessary uh so difficult, I would imagine to shift not only your own mindset, but also help the families or the other negotiators shift to theirs as well.
0: I'd love to kind of dig in a little bit more here and kind of elaborate on that as to what do you see as the critical skills or characteristics of a crisis negotiator? And how are these the same qualities beneficial to all of us, regardless of profession or just in our personal lives?
2: I think if people only take away, you know, one or two things from this podcast, it would be Emotional awareness and self-regulation is key in all aspects of life. Whether you're dealing with a kidnapper, it's a client that you're trying to close a deal with, your kids, neighbors, anybody. You know, if you can develop this, let's call it a sensory acuity. You know, you've got this this antennae where you're constantly scanning for your own and other people's emotions. And once you can identify what they are, we call it name it to tame it. So if you can name it I what you're feeling right now and perhaps calling out what you're feeling as well, that can kind of just dissipate any of the tension uh, or look like a release valve almost. So it's having that sensory acuity, it's having this awareness, this emotional awareness, and then the self-regulation that 80% of the time you can operate from a place of equanimity rather than some kind of knee jerk emotive reaction. And by way of a caveat, this is not to say that you're going to glide along gracefully through life, not really experiencing any high emotion. What this is about is you can still feel the emotion, but you don't become hostage to it, if excuse the pun. You can be aware of it, you can tune into it, And then through that regulation and the awareness, you can allow it to dissipate and then you can engage with the conversation, the negotiation.
1: That's got to be so difficult. I mean, people like to pretend that emotions and feelings aren't present in a negotiation and yet they are. Can you say just a little bit more maybe about this idea of emotional regulation? I mean, I love the idea of kind of scanning for them. How has this shown up for you in the past? either in the person you're negotiating with in the family or company you're trying to help or for yourself. And like, what are the things you do and what would you recommend people do to really, to really master kind of this emotional control?
2: Yeah. I think it's worth understanding from an evolutionary perspective, we are emotional creatures that think rather than thinking creatures that feel, you know, we're designed as a species. We're driven by, these emotions, but we create them, we're architects of our experience because all three of us on this call could experience exactly the same situation completely differently. One of us it could be deep joy, the other one it could be deep sadness depending on our perspective, our model of the world, our belief system, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's really emphasizing what, accepting that emotions do dictate the quality of our lives but we're in charge of determining what those emotions are. Does that make sense really? Yeah. And so the way we can do that is whenever we get hit by the tsunami of overwhelm or the the trigger, and we only have to go on social media for about five minutes these days before somebody will get triggered over something. And in that moment, I I give people a three-step process and according to the immediate action drill, you know, you guys in the military, you'll know all about these immediate action drills where you need to right. you don't got time to really sit down and do a an, a an elaborate plan. Hey, if this happens, if the button gets pressed, we need to go straight away. And so I devised this out of experience, really, of keeping this in my back pocket, metaphorically. And it was the first step is when the trigger happens, it's interrupt the pattern because that could involve everything from just standing up if you're sitting down, taking a couple of breaths, going outside and doing some jumping jacks, whatever is going to work for you. But it's in that moment, rather than allowing yourself to fall in the river where the other person is in that, the, the rushing water of emotion, you can stay on the bank. It gives you that space with which to move to step two, which is to feel the feeling, but drop the story behind it. I call it riding the wave. You know, for any surfers listening mm-hmm. or any skiers when you're really skiing at the edge of your comfort zone yeah. down those red or black runs, is you've just got to hold on, you've got to get in the flow but then eventually you'll it'll run out. The wave will crash, you'll get to the bottom of the slope and where emotions are concerned, it's 90 seconds. You know, scientists have proven, neuroscience has proven that we get this wave of cortisol and adrenaline pumping through our bodies when we get triggered for about 90 seconds, two minutes. And so if we can interrupt the pattern and just keep shtum, just keep silent for those 90 seconds without saying or doing something related to regret, then once those emotions have have calmed down a bit and nervous system balances out, we can then re-engage with the third step, which is just ask better questions. You know, what was all that about? Where did that come from? What's the learning from this? Where's the improvement? And again, using the military analogy here for, for you two around, you know, this unrelenting pursuit of excellence. What could I do differently? Where's the, where's the learning here? Well, an after action review. What can we learn from this as a team, as an individual, so we can make sure we minimize the challenges happening again?
1: We obviously like the steps, we like that model.
0: Yeah, I love immediate action drills. I love being able to kind of use that in the heat of the moment. I still remember sports, which is what happens if we have a malfunction in our rifle and it's slap, pull, observe, release, tap, squeeze.
2: You still got it. You still remember it. Yeah, so
0: still got it. So uh, definitely a fan of immediate action drills. So, yeah, I love that. Um, Many of the negotiations you've been part of involved working with teams. How do you handle the internal negotiations involving stress, different priorities, conflicting perceptions and, and so on to ensure that the team is as effective as possible?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, When I would go on a case, I would fly in somewhere, I'd go straight from the airport, usually to the embassy or the conference room in the client office. And as soon as you walk in the room, you can just feel the tension. You can feel the competing egos, the internal politics, the high stakes. And then everybody's like looking at you for that. Ah, the cover arrived. We can breathe a sigh of relief. But there's all this stuff simmering under the surface there. And we call it the crisis within the crisis. Dealing with the kidnappers is easy compared to dealing with our own side. In fact, my main job was to A, reassure everybody and then come up with a strategy about how we were going to deal with this. But the real goal... Was this is why I called the book Order Out of Chaos, was to bring some order, was to bring some balance and calm, but I could only really effectively do that if I could quickly work out where everybody was at emotionally, psychologically, physically, intellectually, where were they in the organisation, and it's, I guess, interpreting all this data as quickly as possible to know, okay, well, Aram, he's the sort of guy who takes things a bit slow and needs lots of data in order to make a decision. Whereas Nolan, hey, he's an intuitive, gut-thinking guy, makes decisions in a blink of an eye, and they've got maybe different beliefs or rules. And so quickly, I can try and sense where everybody's at and based on those personality types, essentially, and the emotions I'm sensing, I can then adapt my communication style to them. And obviously, (laughs) you don't just... Read a book or do a course once and then are able to do that really well. It's just through experience and it's a bit like muscle memory. You go to the gym, not just once, but you need to go all the time to get stronger. And so I was just through the the sheer throughput of cases that built up this experience of being able to walk into a room, into a crisis situation and read the room and read the people very, very quickly. And the way I managed to do that was suspend judgment park my own ego at the door and be just really super curious and so i guess as a former detective it served me what well is i was just really nosy i was just i wanted to get under the hood was, <laughs> what, 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 what makes this person tick right. why do they think feel that the way they do i'm just nosy i'm curious i want to get to the heart of it and that takes a bit of effort but bear in mind, I'm going to be sat next to these people for 16 hours a day for four, five, six weeks, two, three months, whatever it is. So it's worth spending the time with any team, particularly in those early days, just getting to get you Now, how do people operate? What's their operating system? And then it's about, you know, the whole seat first to understand before being understood. And as a leader, you know, maybe listen a bit more than you're talking, particularly in the early days. And as leaders, I've made this mistake myself, where we've gone in and we've just dictated how it's all going to be. Whereas actually, if we just spend a bit more time listening and interpreting and asking questions and then come out with our plan, I think it's a better result long term.
1: You said that the kidnappers are the easy ones and there's this focus internally. I also read you were quoted in an article in The Guardian that in a crisis, you spend about 80% of your time and energy negotiating with the families or companies you're assisting. Again, it's this inward focus. I find that amazing uh, as a number. And I just think, you know, so much we can learn from how you manage those conversations to protect that relationship, which is essential to understanding the choices you got to make, decisions are going to need to be made. Yeah, I mean, can you say just a little bit more about the importance of getting that right?
2: Yeah, let's use a business analogy. I mean, now I go into businesses and I work with leadership teams around how to operate in a crisis or how to improve their communication and culture. But from your own experiences of going into organizations, regardless of the industry or sector, where is most of the focus of the training and the problem-solving and the processes, it's all internal. Yeah. Actually, dealing with the clients in all these companies, in my experience, that's the easy bit. That's the bit that the companies get right more often than not. It's the internal issues, the dramas, the egos, the processes, the systems that don't work, the competing, the internal politics, uh, whatever it is. That's right. That's the stuff that most of us, either uh, you know, as a consultant or a trainer, as a facilitator, as a speaker, will go in and have to address. So the same principles apply, sitting around a crisis management team, negotiating the release of hostages or dealing with, I don't know, any company in the corporate world. It's the same.
0: Some of the people you negotiate with are dangerous, maybe even evil or have evil intent. How do you coach people to engage with people that they don't trust or find it difficult to empathize with?
2: In a way, those kind of people are are some of the easiest to, to negotiate with or communicate with. Because often their ego is driving the show. It's all about them. Often they will have this perspective, their own sense of importance in the world. And so by spending a bit of time preparing for these conversations, so preparation is the first step. Understanding that these kind of conversations are not without risk to hopefully not physically, but maybe emotionally, reputationally more often than not and know that it's not going to be a plain sailing conversation that you might have with, um, an an easier client perhaps. And so by doing the preparation, working out what are maybe some of the challenges, the threats, the issues, the questions they're likely to raise against you, we call this the bunch of fives, you know, imagine the palm of your hand and in a hostage, a kidnap situation, we would anticipate what what would be the worst, if we were the kidnappers now, what would be the top three to five really difficult demands or threats or challenges to put us under pressure? So by getting ahead of the curve, by working out what they're likely to be, it means we can prepare and plan for them. And it means it doesn't knock us off guard when they show up. And so the same would apply for conversation in a difficult workplace scenario, perhaps. And so by doing that, that's the first step. And then once you're in the conversation with this difficult person, it's being direct, not rude. It's being prepared to be challenged and threatened. And it's knowing where your, I guess, your red lines are, your boundaries, just like in any relationship or conversation or any negotiation, in fact, is that at some point, do you press eject? Do you walk away? You know what does it mean for you? What are the pros and cons, risks, the mitigation uh, around this stuff? Is it something that you have no choice? Like I can walk away from a negotiation with a kidnapper, however difficult they were. But in a business deal or in a personal relationship or in a personal situation, you may go, do you know what? This just ain't worth it. We're going to walk away from this deal because even though this deal right now may be good, we don't want to do a long term business with this kind of person or these people. And so it's it's having, again, that sensory acuity, that awareness throughout the conversation as to how it's going and where you are. In-
1: let, let me ask a follow-on question there. If I heard you right, you said, I mean, obviously in your negotiations, the option of walking away isn't really there. So how do you make up for that when you don't have that ability to go to an alternative necessarily other than maybe direct force uh, to get what you want done? which may not be um, feasible, uh, do you leverage some other things um, as as you engage with the the, the kidnappers?
2: Leverage um, is an interesting concept in negotiation. We could do a whole podcast on, on that, I'm sure. Yeah. Kidnap scenario. They've got what we want, i.e. the hostages. We've got what they want in the money. And so what's the best alternative to negotiated agreement here? Well, We're just going to walk away. Are they going to walk away? Are they going to kill the hostages? I mean, we've got some leverage, i.e. we've got some money we can pay them. Yet it's not being afraid to have that difficult conversation by managing expectations right at the outset. So I know, and I say this, every kidnapping case I go on, I sit down with the client. In the initial briefing, when I explain how this is going to work out, I say, very early on, we want to bring about a confrontation with the kidnapper. They go, what do you mean? Surely we don't antagonize them. I said, well, when they come in for a million dollars and you've only got 50000 to pay them, we're going to have to manage their expectations somehow. And one of the ways we would do that would be in our initial offer. Mm. And they would, and I can guarantee you 100%, they would shout, scream, threaten, you name it. But we need to get that out the way so everybody knows where we're at with it. And so then we can get into the negotiation proper. And so all I'd say on that is, if you need to have some kind of quote unquote confrontation to manage expectations, do that as early as possible. And we wouldn't be rude or we wouldn't be rude or unprofessional. We would just say, hey, this is all the money we can get for you right now. You know, we're a poor company. It's all tied up, whatever the the narrative is. But we've got 15,000 for you right now. You know, and then we can enter the negotiation and slow everything down and get to the point where, like in any deal, not just in kidnapping, but in any deal, if the other side thinks that you got more you can give, there's more money you can put on the table, they're going to hold out. So we want to go, yeah. actually, no, this is this is the end point for us, whatever that is.
0: Hey everyone, Nolan here. I have to jump in and end today's podcast for part A of this show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Negotiate X podcast if you haven't already. And also join us next week for part B of this awesome interview. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.